With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 134. It's titled, It's Just Money. We recently downsized to a smaller house, as you know, from our farm and have been giving items away to friends, family, and the local thrift store. We've also been selling things on Craigslist and Facebook. Excess beds, a couch, kitchen table, chairs, a treadmill, a John Deere riding mower, a snowblower, etc. One result of this great unburdening is for the first time in many years, I have a lot of cash in the form of paper money stuffed in my billfold. I'm awkward with it. The bills are crumpled together. When I count them out to buy a meal at a restaurant, I'm a little embarrassed by how out of practice and clumsy I am in handling cash. I used to be so much better at it in counting out coins and bills. When I lived in Mexico in the mid-80s in an era of hyperinflation, I only used cash and could easily manipulate the money in my hand to pay for goods and services. Now with the proliferation of direct deposit, debit cards, and online bill pay, I just don't use cash very much, and I suspect you don't either. In many advanced economies, the use of paper bills and coins has plummeted. Sweden's Riksbank, the world's oldest central bank, which first issued paper banknotes in the 1660s, is exploring issuing a central bank-backed digital currency, similar to Bitcoin, because there has been such a large decline in the desire of Swedes to use cash. The Financial Times reports the amount of Swedish paper notes and coins in circulation has dropped 40% since 2009. Meanwhile, the developing world is still a predominantly cash society. For example, in India, India uses a ton of cash. That's what most people use. And that sent them into turmoil recently after the surprise announcement by the federal government that they were annulling all of the country's existing 500 rupee and 1,000 rupee banknotes and replacing them with new 500 and 2,000 rupee notes. That's 86% of the money in circulation, about $223 billion. Alak Prasad, a senior banker, told the Financial Times, quote, it's a logistic nightmare replacing 22 billion pieces of paper across a population of 1.2 billion in a country the size of India. Now, the purpose of this exchange program is to flush out so-called black money, money that was earned illegally or not reported to tax authorities. The impact after the announcement was immediate. ATMs no longer worked and long lines formed at banks with citizens and tourists waiting to exchange bills, the old bills for the new ones, and so that they could get ca- cash that they needed to buy food and other supplies. Construction worker Madhaya Pradesh told the Financial Times, I didn't have any food last night because the grocer didn't accept any of these old notes. 
Smaller banknotes have just stopped circulating as people hoard the remaining supply due to the cash shortage. Now, at least in India, this shortfall, this cash shortage will eventually work itself out as they exchange the notes. But the situation in Zimbabwe, another country that is heavily dependent on cash, is much more severe. Zimbabwe has been using the U.S. dollar as its main currency since 2009 after inflation hit 500 billion percent. And and I didn't make that number up. I got that from, from, I think it was an article in the BBC News that I'll link to in the show notes. 500 billion percent. That caused the local currency to collapse. Now, Zimbabwe needs to use dollars. That's what they're using. But in order to use dollars, you need to get dollars. And the way that you get dollars into your country is you export goods. You run a trade surplus. But Zimbabwe has been running a trade deficit. And as a result, many of those U.S. dollars that have been circulating, flowing throughout the country uh, are leaving. And that is making it difficult for banks to meet customers' demand for U.S. paper currency so that they can buy basic goods and services. The Zimbabwe government announced a program to issue what they're calling bond notes, which are backed or denominated in U.S. dollars in order to ease the cash crunch. So if you don't have a U.S. dollar, then you can have one of these bond notes. What's unclear, though, is whether the people will trust the new notes, especially after the hyperinflation that they just lived through. Here's a quote from Tendai Biti. He was Zimbabwe's former finance minister. He told this to foreign policy. His quote is, the bond note is as good as a leaf in my garden. What a load of rubbish. The irony is the U.S. dollar bill isn't much different than a garden leaf. It's a fiat currency, which means it's not backed by anything. The dollar has no intrinsic value. It's worthless. Relative, it, essentially, it's worthless, just like a garden leaf. The only reason it has value is because people believe it has value. They trust it and they use it. That's why we're not exchanging garden leaves. We're using dollars. But the paper itself, it's just a piece of paper. But people do use the U.S. dollar. SWIFT is a leading global provider of interbank messages on financial transactions. In other words, how all the international banks talk to each other. They're the leading provider. They did a study where they estimated in 2014 the U.S. dollar comprised 52% of worldwide currency usage in international cross-border transactions for trade and investing. So 52% of all the transactions from investing and trade were done in the U.S. dollars. That compares to 48% in 2012. And so the dollar is being even used more than it was three or four years ago. The euro ranked second with 31% of currency usage. And the British pound came in a distant third at 5%. Most commodities, including oil, are traded and priced in dollars. The U.S. dollar is also the borrowing currency of choice. According to the Bank for International Settlements, in mid-2014, U.S. dollar-denominated credit to non-financial borrowers outside of the U.S., such as households, businesses, and governments, was $8 trillion. And so these households outside of the U.S. that want to borrow in a foreign currency, they're borrowing primarily in dollars. $8 trillion 
uh, of debt held by individuals, households, businesses outside of the U.S. That compares to $2.5 trillion denominated in euros and $0.6 trillion in yen. The U.S. dollar is the dominant currency in trade, investing, and borrowing because the U.S. has the deepest, most liquid financial markets. It's the largest economy in the world, and it runs the largest trade deficit. And by running a large trade deficit, that means there is an abundant flow of dollars into the world that can be used for trading and investing. That, that is sort of one outgrowth of running a huge trade deficit because people need to get dollars. And one way you get dollars is through the trade and the dollars are flowing out. The rise in global trade has made the world ever more dependent on the dollars as complex global supply chains requires working capital to source manufacture and transport goods and services. As we send products all around the world, it takes money to do that. And much of that money or that capital is borrowed from banks and it's borrowed in U.S. dollars. Here's the thing, though. The willingness of banks to lend in dollars is not unlimited. They're always adjusting their balance sheet. And one of the things that, it, that, in fact, most recently in a talk by Hyun Song-shin, who is head of research at the London School of Economics and Political Science, he showed that when the dollar is strengthening, as it's been the past 18 months, banks are less willing to lend in dollars. They're willing to lend less as the dollar strengthens. Now, why is that? That's because as the dollar strengthens, Foreign borrowers need to generate more income in their weakening local currency to service a U.S. dollar debt. That's one disadvantage. If you have a foreign debt, say in dollars, and the dollar strengthening, that means if you if you primarily generate income in your own local currency, you need more income in order to service that debt. And as a result, these borrowers that that live in countries with a weakening currency. They are a greater credit risk to bank, and so banks have become less, or they become less willing to lend to them. So this reduced lending, as the dollar strengthened, negatively impacts the global supply chain. This need for working capital to source and transport and build products, the these they can't these businesses can't get a hold of the dollars. They can't get the borrowing that they're that they're usually able to as the dollar strengthens. And that could be one reason global trade volume growth has been slowing and the value of global trade actually has declined since mid-2014. There is a risk the U.S. dollar shortage that currently plagues Zimbabwe, in this case it's physical dollars, that could go global if the U.S. dollar continues to strengthen and if the Trump administration implements some of its promised reforms. Deutsche Bank AG strategists George Saravelos and Rob, Robin Winkler recently wrote, quote, We expect deglobalization to negatively impact financial markets, particularly the availability of dollar funding. Reserve manager commercial bank dollar deposits are falling. Central bank swap lines can no longer be, be taken for granted. The potential repatriation of more than a trillion dollars of offshore U.S. corporate earnings could aggravate 
dollar funding pressure. U.S. corporations has, have upwards of $2 trillion in profits stored overseas that they've not bought back into the country because of the 35% corporate income tax rate. If there's some deal to repatriate those, a tax holiday, that is a very large amount of dollars, you know, potentially trillions or more of, of profits that need to be converted to U.S. dollars to be brought back in. That could further strengthen the currency, strengthen the U.S. dollars, and could have a negative impact on trade. Analyst Isabella Kaminsky recently wrote in the Financial Times Alphaville column that a global dollar shortage, quote, stands to become the most significant destabilizing force in recent times and the most unanticipated global tail risk. When something is in short supply, its price goes up. And, and we've done episodes of the show where we talked about fears of a dollar crash. Well, if the dollar is in short supply, it's not crashing. It's actually going up in value. It's strengthening, and that can have negative impact on global trade because global businesses rely on dollar debt, dollar borrowings in order to fund their working capital. So what does this mean? Well, from an invest a personal investing standpoint, what that means is it's helpful to be diversified in ter terms of your currency. In other words, for a U.S.-based investor, for example, and we show this on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub in the model portfolios, a portion of the, the, equity, the global equity exposure is, is not hedged into the U.S. dollar, and a portion is. The portion that is hedged, as the dollar strengthens, you actually benefit that. As the dollar weakens, not having a hedged portion benefits you. And having some of both actually reduces some of the, the volatility. But this is just, these are just trends to monitor, to recognize just how complicated the currency is. Where, where you have foreign countries, you have Zimbabwe using the dollar day to day. You have trade heavily dependent on dollars. You have many investors from overseas wanting dollars so they can invest in the U.S. bond market, for example, because the yields or the rates are higher than they can get anywhere else. And in all these dollars both physical and digital, are flowing all around the country. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. 
That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts. High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed, cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. Ten years ago, I wrote a blog post on my personal blog. I was sitting in the Delta Crown Room at the Seattle airport, and I titled the post, Money is Like a River. And I shared some of my experience in Mexico and how I learned that no matter how poor you are, you share. And, and I wrote that I began in Mexico to get the first inkling that money is like a river. It flows, sometimes fast, sometimes at a trickle, but it is never really ours because money is so abstract. I've mentioned the, the proliferation of debit cards, online bill pay. It, you just don't, you don't see money unless you don't have any. When your balance is close to zero, money is very, very real. Or you're in a very a cash society and you can't, suddenly your, your, your currency isn't worth and you got to go to the bank to exchange it out because they've annulled it. Then the money is very real. But for many of us, money is abstract. We never see it. It, and it just kind of it just kind of flows like a river. One of the shows listener Ralph sent me an essay called "The Little Virtues." It's by Italian author Natalia Ginsburg. And and what was was fascinating about this is I use this analogy that the money is like a river. She used a very similar analogy, but she talked about what it means to have a just relationship with money. A just relationship. Now, the title of this episode is It's Just Money. little play on the words. Here's what she said. Being moderate with oneself and generous with others, this is what is meant by having a just relationship with money. You're, you're moderate with your own needs and what you spend, but you're generous with others. By being free as far as money is concerned, and there is no doubt that it is less difficult to educate a child so that he has such a sense of proportion, such a freedom in a family in which money is earned and immediately spent, in which it flows like clear spring water and practically does not exist as money. Money is abstract, right? It isn't, if you never are manipulating the coins and bills, it almost doesn't seem like it exists as money. It just sort of flows in and out like a clear spring water. She goes on to say, things become complicated where money exists and exists heavily, where it is a leaden, stagnant pool that stinks and gives off vapors. The children are soon aware of the presence of this money in the family, this hidden power which no one ever mentions openly, but to which the parents refer by means of complicated and mysterious names when they are talking among themselves with leaden stillness in their eyes and a bitter curl to the lips. 
Money which is not simply kept in a desk drawer, but which accumulates who knows where, and which can at any moment be sucked back into the earth, disappearing forever and swallowing up both house and family. In families like this, the children are constantly told to spend money grudgingly. Every day the mother tells them to be careful and thrifty as she gives them a few coins for their tram fare. In the mother's gaze, there is that leaden preoccupation, and on her forehead there is a deep wrinkle which appears whenever money is discussed. And there is obscure fear that all money will dissolve into nothing that even those few coins, those few coins might signify. Now, as I read that, I, I thought, what, what kind of what's the attitude toward money as I've taught my children? Because I, I think you know, so much of what we teach our children, we don't necessarily sit down and teach them. They, they kind of pick up these adders. They can tell when there is a lot of underlying money stress in a family, particularly if it's never talked about, whether you have very little or a lot of money. If money is not talked about, it, if it becomes this, this thing on this pedestal, this big thing, then, then it can put a lot of stress on a family. She says, the true defense against wealth is not a fear of wealth, of its fragility, and of the vicious consequences that it can bring. The true defense against wealth is an indifference to money. She suggests we be indifferent to money. And there's no better way, she says, to teach a child this indifference than to give him money to spend when there is money, because then he will learn to part with it without worrying about it or regretting it. So after reading that essay, I gathered my courage and I called up my oldest son who just turned 25 this month and I asked him kind of what was the the narrative or the relationship with money in our family growing up? What do you remember? And His first recollection of money, we were living in Ohio. We lived in a little small brick home with a little postage stamp yard. But on the in the backyard, outside of the backyard, there was a was what I call the neutral zone. It was this green space. And then on the other side of the green space, there were these big houses with acreage. And and one of these houses right behind us was a friend he had made, and he remembered going over there. They had a pool, they had a huge house, but he was most fascinated as they actually had two phone lines, so they could have a dedicated phone line for the internet. And my son mentioned that he realized that this other family, they had, they had stuff that we didn't have. They had way more stuff that we didn't have, but he, he, just, rec- he just felt like that's just kind of the way it was. But later when we moved to Idaho, he started to realize that we had more things than others. Not that we were showy. And and we definitely, he said, he remembered us helping people that needed help. But he also remembered that we talked about money, that we were open with it. It wasn't this thing that was never discussed. We, we talked about a family budget. We talked about when we'd go on a trip. We talked about what it cost to go on a trip. But one of the clearest memories that he's had, we were preparing to go somewhere, maybe to Mexico, and there was a particular item that he couldn't find, and, and he had lost it. And, and I told him, don't worry about it. It's just money. We'll buy a new one. And, and that, you know, of the many things he remembered throughout his growing up years, that's what he remembered. 
Don't worry about it. It's just money. Now, there's two ways to look at that, he said. One is, don't worry about it. It's just money because we have plenty of money. But he also, what he took away from it was money just isn't that important. It's not that big of a deal. In other words, he there was an indifference to it, recognizing that money is important. We certainly save it. We use it to help people. But hopefully, and it sounds like there's a level of indifference to money that it's not the most important thing. Now, I would jokingly tell my kids, I'll give you a nickel for every A you give. And I, and I don't think I, nobody ever collected, but I only offered a nickel. The uh, Ginsburg writes, when we elevate money into a prize, a goal, an object to be striven for, when we give it a position, an importance, a nobility, which it should not have in our children's eyes, we implicitly affirm the principle, a false one, that money is the crowning reward for work, its ultimate objective. Money should be thought of as a wage for work, not its ultimate objective, but its wage. That is legitimate recognition. And it is clear that the scholastic work of children cannot have a wage. It is a small mistake, but a mistake to also offer our children money in return for domestic services, for doing little chores. It is a mistake because we are not our children's employers. The family money is as much theirs as it is ours. Those little services and chores should be done without reward as a voluntary sharing in the family life. And I'll link to this essay in the show notes. You might agree with some of it. You might agree with all of it. And, and you can get those show notes at moneyfortherestofus.net. If you remember my Insider's Guide, you've already gotten links to those show notes. And you can also sign up for that free Insider's Guide where you'll get, you'll get a free email. I guess all emails for you. You'll get an email every Wednesday after the show is released. That's at moneyfortherestofus.net. Or if you're a U.S.-based listener, just text the word INSIDER to the number 44222. But it's, it's interesting when we have an indifference toward money, when we recognize it's not on the pedestal, when it's not the most important thing, that it's not the reason that we work, that we work to learn, to help, and, and to grow. Money is just its wage. It's sort of part of it, but it is not the most important thing. Final quote, and I've shared this before. Henry David Thoreau said, the spending of the best part of one's life earning money in order to enjoy a questionable liberty during the least valuable part of it reminds me of the Englishman who went to India to make a fortune first in order that he might return to England and live the life of a poet. He should have gone up Garrett at once, and by Garrett, up into the attic under the eaves to start writing his poetry. Life is too important to put money on a pedestal. It's just money. And recognize that there are places in the world where they have very, very little money, and, and there, but even there, the money tends to flow. It's not, it, it's not put on a pedestal because it immediately is turned and, and spent for, for goods and services. So we need a sense of proportion when it comes to money. We need some indifference when it comes to it. So we're not overly concerned about it. We need to do, as Ginsburg said, be moderate with ourselves and generous with others. Let money flow. Don't hoard it. But certainly we need to save some and invest it for our retirement. 
but that can't be the sole purpose of our existence. We need to enjoy the freedom now. Live like we're already retired, as I've said many, many times. The structure of life where, yes, you have some money, you're earning money, but you're also growing, learning, and living life and experiencing freedom. So that's episode 134. Show notes again at moneyfortherestofus.net. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice, simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.